You're listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Time now for some Pythagorean astronomy with me, Chris North. And me, Edward Gomez. It's been an exciting month in astronomy. We've had the first detection of gravitational waves and light from a single event, dubbed uh, GW170817, or the golden binary to some. Uh, this was a very exciting turn of events. actually happened back uh, in August and released on the 16th of October. And we'll try and explain uh, this month a little bit about what that all means. Uh, we're joined by Sarah Roberts, who works here uh, in Cardiff and also for a, a range of other organisations, explaining science to uh, the public and school children and teachers and all sorts of people. So welcome, Sarah. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Now, uh, Edward, first of all, this this uh, announcement back in uh, on Monday, it was uh, it was fairly big news. In it was very big news. Yeah. And um, I've actually been very envious of all the gravitational wave people for all these months having having secret discussions and having this uh, secret news that they can't spread until a press release. And finally, I'm part of uh, these 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 secret things uh, because for the very first time, gravitational waves were discovered to have uh, a visible light counterpart. Well, actually, just an electromagnetic spectrum counterpart. So it's visible um, light, gamma rays, radio waves, infrared light. All yeah, the whole, or yeah. the whole shebang. And um, the um, the observatory I worked for, Las Cumbres Observatory, was quite a big part in identifying uh, the, the visible light counterpart and also studying... Uh, this phenomenon as it continued to change over a period of around about a week. It was, and as the uh, the press releases were drawing to a close, we'll talk about the event itself uh, in more detail. So, Sarah, you wrote uh, you wrote an alternative version of uh, the press release, the announcement that went out to uh, to everyone. Um, something called a space scoop, and you do these for uh, specific ages. How, how, where do you aim these? Yeah, that's right. I write Space Scoop, and these are aimed at children as young as eight, all the way up to adults. I know many adults that enjoy Space Scoop just as much as the children. And I guess the age is just saying this is the general, this is the level of uh, background knowledge that's required to read it. You don't need to know any astronomy to understand this. I guess. No, um, one of the first rules when writing, I imagine, for the general, for general audiences as well as very young audiences, is not to presume um, any prior knowledge. So um, in terms of space kit, this means keeping technical jargon to a minimum um, and always explaining terms that we do need to include and backing up new concepts with things that children can relate to. You've been writing space Scoop for three or four years now. I have, yes. And so, and so you've probably built up uh, a knowledge base of particular things. So I, you say that you don't include jargon, but things like a black hole, that's actually jargon. But you've probably had space scoops for many years that have mentioned black holes. So uh, do you use those space scoops and refer to those space scoops so that anybody reading a current space scoop can go back and have a look at other ones which maybe mention black holes so they get a, a bigger understanding? Uh, so, of course, we can't avoid all jargon, particularly astronomical vocabulary. Um, and one of the things we like to do with Space Scoop is expand uh, children's vocabulary and scientific vocabulary. So, of course, we include things like uh, black holes or cosmic rays. Um, and although on the internet, uh, on the Space Scoop website, we can link back to previous articles or even definitions, um, we also publish these um, in magazines and newspapers. So we do always t try to include at least a short line explaining um, 
the word or the term. And one of the amazing things about Spacegoop is that it's available in many different languages. How many languages uh, do you have with Spacegoop? It is. Um, because our network of translators are voluntary, they're fantastic, they're very loyal, uh, but they are voluntary, so they're not always available every week to translate every Spacegoop. Um, with the Gravity and Light Space Scoop uh, specifically, we have this currently available in 15 languages, which is very exciting. Um, our website itself is available in 28 languages at the moment, I believe. That's wonderful. That's really good. So um, how did you manage with this exciting but highly secret press release, um, sending it out to translators? Yeah, you're right. That's the first thing I knew about this story. Of course, I've been keeping up to date with um, the excitement of gravitational waves over the last few years. Uh, but this one, this press release, when it came to me, there was a particularly large amount of secrecy around it. I was told that I wasn't allowed to share this with translators in advance um, of the release, which is very unusual. Uh, but they were all very quick to um, to translate it as soon as they heard. They were obviously just as excited as the rest of us about this. It starts off with gravitational waves, this particular event, and that's uh, one of these pieces of jargon. So can you talk us through... Uh, the the process of explaining this particular discovery to a, a general audience? Uh, yep, so as I said, um, when working with or when writing for young children, uh, we try to back up new concepts with things that the children can relate to, uh, which is very important with such a young age. So in this case, I focus the story around the multi-messenger aspect. So the idea that we're seeing an event for the first time using multiple sensors. Um, so, for example, if we see cosmic light, then you could say that we feel gravitational waves. And, of course, the more senses we use to explore an event, the better our understanding. Um, so to children, I might explain this by saying that if we had a bowl of brown liquid on the table, we, don't, we can see that it's brown liquid, but we don't know whether it's chocolate sauce or gravy until we smell it or taste it. Um, and in the same way, we may have seen um, gamma ray bursts previously, um, and as of, as of um, 2015, um, we felt gravitational waves. But this is the first time that we've detected both light and gravitational waves from the same event. Yeah, and that's, and that's really the story. You know, that is the essentials of this story, is that there are now finally an event to tie um, gravitational waves and the, uh, the electromagnetic spectrum together. So it is fantastic that Space Scoop could really... Uh, show kids and and a general audience uh, what is exciting, the essentials of what is exciting about this story, which is actually a really complex story, you know, when you think about it, and that's the, the beauty of Space Scoop. Yeah, so while I generally choose not to focus on one or two concepts, that was particularly difficult writing this story. Of course, it covers gamma ray bursts, neutron stars, gravitational waves, and now even kilonova. Uh, which I'll let you explain. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we, sh we should actually talk about what the what the event specifically was. We haven't actually discussed what actually happened or what was announced on the on the sixteenth. So, uh, the, the idea is uh, that on uh, the seventeenth of August, twenty seventeen, uh, the LIGO and Virgo observatories detected uh, gravitational waves from a merger, a, a collision of two objects. Now they've done this before, as Sarah mentioned. They found. Uh, black holes colliding and this time it was apparent from the masses of the objects they were probably uh, neutron stars uh, so these are less massive than a, than a black hole and we know neutron stars exist uh, Edward we've seen we've seen them elsewhere yeah that's right um, we see neutron stars in a whole load of different ways we can see um, radio signals from neutron stars these pulsars you can see them spinning very rapidly and blinking um, and 
so we were very comfortable with neutron stars. And actually, we were expecting the very first gravitational waves to be discovered were probably going to be neutron stars because we thought they were more numerous mm. uh, in the universe than, uh, than black holes. Or certainly, um, it was going to be... A, uh, these collisions were a lot more numerous than collisions of, of black holes. Uh, that's the beauty of science. We were totally wrong about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, because there are four and a half events, or four-ish four events. There's yeah. one which is uh, um, a, a, an event which is a little bit disputed. But four-ish events uh, prior to this, which have been uh, entirely black hole events. Mm. Now, neutron stars, in some ways, are more bizarre than, than black holes. People might have heard of black holes as being these uh, these uh, objects that suck all matter in. That's not quite what they do, but they suck in everything. They get too close to them. They have a very strong gravitational pull. They're very small. They're very dense. And you can almost think of them as something called a singularity, a, a distortion in the fabric of space and time itself at their very nucleus. So people have heard of, of black holes uh, often. Uh, they've, they've heard of them and seen them in, in science fiction and so on. But Sarah, neutron stars are a whole other kettle of fish. How, how do you describe a neutron star to a general audience? Well, you've already covered it, actually. Um, particularly in this story, I didn't want to go into too much detail about neutron stars, as although it's a very important part of the story, it's a small part of the story. Um, so I simply describe neutron stars as abnormally small and dense objects. And when we say abnormal, they're, they're abnormal to the extreme. Uh, so these things are several times denser than the nucleus of an atom, which, again, might not mean much to a lot of people. But I think this, the, the general statistic that's quoted, if you took a teaspoonful of neutron star, if you could go down to the surface of a neutron star with a teaspoon, scoop up a teaspoon's worth of it, you'd be, have to lift up the same mass as the entirety of Mount Everest here on Earth. There. Yeah, and if you had um, something like a milk bottle and you dropped it uh, from normal height, so chest height, uh, onto the surface of a neutron star. By the time it accelerated to the fl to the floor, to where your feet would be, uh, it would have the kinetic energy, which would be the, be the equivalent of a, a nuclear bomb. So the gravity is extreme on these objects because they're so they're so small and dense. Yeah, they're about the mass of the sun, or a bit more massive than the sun, and uh, just twenty kilometers across. Yeah, uh, which when the sun is about a a million and a half kilometres across. That's a, that's a very big big difference. So uh, continuing with the the story of the detection, these two neutron stars were seen to be uh, merging, to be spiralling in. They emitted these gravitational waves. The gravitational wave detectors didn't actually see the moment of the merger itself because that actually gets to, to uh, frequencies they can't detect. But what they did see was that there were definitely these two small objects spiralling in and they, they pinpointed the point at which they, they would have merged. And then... A couple of seconds later, there was a flash of gamma rays, and these are observed by satellites in orbit. Yeah, that's right. And the, the reason for this delay is that it's a totally different process that produces the gravitational waves, as, as you said, Chris, uh, to the uh, process that produces the gamma rays. And so uh, there's, there is this, this gap of uh, something like 1.7 seconds between the gamma rays being released and the gravitational waves. And there's a whole lot of physics in there as to why it's 1.7 seconds, not 2 seconds or 5 seconds or yeah. 0.4 seconds, you know. Yeah, there's a lot to study about that. And the way that we know this actually isn't um, is actually because every astronomical observatory has to have a really, really accurate clock for exactly this reason. Uh, and so the LIGO detectors and Virgo detector has very accurate clock. And the the Fermi satellite, which is one of the satellites which detected the gamma rays, uh, has a similar clock. And so you just compare those times. So. Is that time difference something that we should be worrying about, or is that expected? No, it's it's sort of expected. Uh, it's not 
uh, like Chris was saying, there is a lot of physics there. Why? And people are still analysing. Because this is a totally new event, it's actually given uh, scientists um, some headaches, but actually uh, quite a lot of interesting stuff to consider. So how you produce gamma rays, um, people sort of know how you do that. You have to accelerate electrons very, very fast. And, and that takes a, some time. So that gives you uh, an idea of a size because uh, it has to, um, ex you have to accelerate these electrons up to um, a certain speed um, in a certain uh, over a certain distance, and that gives you a time. Um, and but the exact specifics of that, you've got 1.7 seconds, and you can backtrack on um, using that to, to plug into your theoretical models. That would be something that's really interesting when there's more than one of these. So there's one of these events so far: LIGO, Virgo, the gravitational wave detectors are down for. Um, uh, upgrades for the next year or so and uh, the, the expectation is that when they come online they will detect some more of these who knows how lucky we were with this event it might take a few years to get another one or they might start coming in thick and fast we'll have to we'll have to see but by comparing that time difference to lots of different ones will be will be very interesting yeah that's right uh, and and also uh, then you move on from gamma rays so the the way that the story uh, unfolded was that you had gravitational waves you send out a signal and uh, to all of the uh, the observatories in the world or 70 observatory partners and say we've seen gravitational waves please can you look for an a, a, a electromagnetic counterpart and it just so happened that fermi saw this at the same time so they weren't alerted but then when all the observatories got we've seen gamma rays we've seen gravitational waves observatories go crazy because that means that for the first time there is actually going to be light that observatories can see and this is something that's totally new um and so observatories uh, that were all over the world and las cumbres was one of these partners started looking at um, an area of sky now it was quite a big area of sky uh, it is uh, 30 square degrees so that's considerably bigger than the area that the full moon a hundred um, times bigger, in fact. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so uh, observatories started looking in that patch of sky for uh, something that that uh, that was new, something that uh, wasn't hadn't been there in previous images. Um, uh, a bit like uh, Bell's feeling for the Beast in Beauty and the Beast, something <laughs> that wasn't there before. Um, and uh, so, uh, but. But we don't, how do you do that? You don't want to survey lots of blank patches of sky because that will waste a lot of time and that time is critical in this situation. So what we did was we targeted galaxies uh, because we think that supernovae that are uh, similar events to the one that uh, that happened, this kilonovae, um, supernovae happen inside galaxies because most stuff in the universe is inside a galaxy. Except stars for, are. Star, yeah. Stars are... Um, gas and dust there is a little bit of gas and dust outside and there's a lot of uh, dark matter outside of galaxies but most of the uh, the stuff that we can see is inside galaxies so looking in galaxies is uh, a good a good thing to do and that's what other observatories uh, may have done too and we found uh, the the optical counterparts so our, we have optical telescopes visible light telescopes and uh, we found this uh, this little blip in uh, a galaxy that hadn't been there in catalog images and uh, and so we started to study that. So I know um, that many different observatories wanted uh, to dip their thumbs into this pie, <laughs> if that's a phrase. Um, I know five of the 11 Space Group partners 
uh, were part of the follow-up. We had uh, Las Cumbres Observatory, of course, um, also the Chandra X-ray Observatory, um, ALMA, um, the European Southern Observatory. So are there any wavelengths that we didn't observe the Kilanova in? Um, so interestingly, there was uh, there was a, a big gap in uh, the the gamma rays being emitted and the radio waves being emitted. It was actually 16 days, considering the gamma rays were 1.7 seconds after the gravitational wave event. 16 days is actually quite a long time to wait. And the interesting thing about it is that the most of the rest of the uh, the electromagnetic waves had vanished by that time. Uh, the the kilonova event in visible light had faded so much that in 16 days after the event um it was barely visible anymore so is the the we had gravitational waves 1.7 seconds afterwards the gamma rays were emitted and that's from the very very high energy process taking place when the cores of the or the interiors of the ne- these neutron stars when they merge are released into space they they, they release there's a huge amount of energy uh, this huge amount of energy is released and you get this flash of very high energy uh, light from the processes that go on at that point and then uh, you get the uh, the optical afterglow so this is visible light that we used to see with our eyes uh, some hours to days afterwards and this is this is what lco last commerce observatory were and lots of other partners were observing so that that was that was over the time scale of a few days is that fair yeah that's right so uh you see actually a kilonova looks similar to a supernova it brightens and then it fades um, and we managed to get it brightening a little bit and then fading. And the fading happens because the elements that are glowing are radioactive and uh, they start to blink out of existence as they, they radioactively decay. So what you see is basically the half-life of the elements that were glowing. Uh, so that's that's what causes the fading to, to stop uh, the wavelengths that we're looking at. And uh, you've got... Um, but you've got this thing happening over a very short time scale. So for a supernova, it can be weeks or months. And actually, um, sometimes in very rare cases, it can be years. Uh, but with a, this kilonova, it happened just over a few days. So that's that's very fast indeed. Then it, it faded away. It was seen in infrared wavelengths uh, after that as it faded and cooled. And then, as you say, the radio waves were an awful lot longer. And that's because the... The light, the gamma rays, the optical light has had to travel out and meet with the interstellar medium, the, the stuff around this object, and excite the radio waves or cause the radio waves to be emitted. That's the, that's the thinking there, I think. That's it? right. It's also being beamed as well um, from this event. So uh, if you imagine a, a lighthouse, so whatever was created is probably a single object that's rotating very quickly and it's beaming radio waves out at the north and the south poles as, as it's rotating. Uh, And these are travelling through space, but they're also, we're not looking directly down one of the poles. So we're looking at light that's reflected off the interstellar medium. And so it will actually take longer to get to us than the light, the the, the rest of the light, which came virtually from from everywhere, sort of Mm -hmm. symmetrically. Um, But the radio waves, because they're being beamed, they have to bounce off the interstellar medium and be reflected uh, towards us. So their actual path the distance that they travel is slightly longer. Yeah, it's called a light echo in other cases. This is a, uh, That's right, yes. Yeah. I've heard, uh, heard about them before. Going back to the signals, I heard that the signal we detected uh, was, quote, like nothing that had been seen before. 
Um, but of course we've seen short gamma ray bursts before and of course we've detected signals um, or we've detected light in the rest of the electromagnetic spectrum and we've even detected gravitational waves before. So what was different about the signals from this event? So the light was quite different uh, because you can analyse the light in different ways. So you've got uh, the... If you're just looking at the brightness, how the brightness changes, that's quite unlike anything we've seen before because it happens very much quicker than a supernova. And you know, normally we'd have seen something like this and said, oh, it's a supernova explosion. So that is a very interesting thing. But if you analyze the light itself, instead of just looking at the, the brightness of it, and you, you pass it through something like a prism, so you split it, split it out into different colors uh, using uh, a device called a spectrograph, which is on the back of the telescopes, it looks very, very different to the, the, the spectrum of a supernova. So what you see here is the brightness at very particular colors, very particular wavelengths of light. And that tells you, or gives you an indication of uh, not only the temperature of the thing that you're looking at, but also its chemical composition. Now remember, the thing that exploded was a neutron star. So, well, we don't know what that looks like, really. The spectrum of, of, of something that is just composed of neutrons. It looks totally crazy if, you're, if you've got, you know, if your hat is, I'm looking at a supernova, and you look at this thing, and it looks totally different. Um, and, and really, that's, uh, that's one of the exciting things. And that actually give, uh, gave a lot of people cause to think, well, this is something which can now produce, because your, your raw materials isn't the stuff that was inside a star, like when you have a supernova, which is largely hydrogen, helium, and, and a few small amounts of other things. It's neutrons. And neutrons really are the, you know, they're, they're the things that are inside uh, the, the chemical elements. And, but you can form all chemical elements with, with neutrons. Um, they decay into protons and cause the, the whole that's right. can create pretty much the whole periodic table if, if you ask them. That's right. And you 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 really need the, the, the protons as well as the neutrons. But if you've just got neutrons starting and you have very special conditions, you can turn neutrons into protons. Actually, the reverse of that happened when the, the neutron stars that ex uh, eventually exploded, when they were formed, uh, the protons and electrons combined into a neutron, uh, into lots and lots of neutrons from the stars that they, they were originally composed from. So we think that these neutron stars are uh, the origin of many, or the primary origin in the universe, of many of the very heavy elements that we see. So uh, things like uh, gold, uh, yeah. platinum, those kind of elements are probably created in neutron star collisions like this one. And possibly small amounts in the deaths of less massive stars, but primarily in these binary neutron star mergers. Yeah, which is quite phenomenal, really. You think that the gold, the, the gold in my wedding ring... Mm could have come from one of these events and probably did come from one of these events. And and yet we have some of that on Earth now. Yeah. And these events would have been, you know, billions of years in the past. So here's what I was thinking. We t talk about being stardust because we're made of, of elements that come out of stars. And in fact, uh, we're also made, or maybe maybe our jewellery, I'm sure there's heavy elements in us as well, uh, are made from, um, I guess, neutron stardust in, yeah. in some senses, which yes. is quite bizarre. But it was also unlike other things we'd seen before this, this, this particular event. Normally when we see gamma ray bursts, you, you mentioned them being beams towards us. So the, the beams of gamma rays come out of the, the poles of the event, if you like, of, of whatever's, whatever's exploding. This one appeared to be tilted so that they happened to not be pointed very much towards us. They were pointed about 40-odd degrees away from us, which meant it was much fainter in gamma rays than we'd seen 
with previous events. So that was it was one of the the least luminous, if not the least luminous gamma ray burst or short gamma ray burst uh, witnessed or ever, ever seen. But that also meant that because those gamma rays were going off at this this off this this different angle, that's what allowed us to see the optical afterglow, this thing called the kilonova. That if if they hadn't been tilted at this weird angle, we probably wouldn't have been able to see all this other stuff as well. So it was uh, um, many other things combining together to give us the um, yeah, that's the miracle of science. Yeah, you know, you you plan and then you get something totally unexpected. So we, we've seen this event in gravity, we've seen it in light. Um, it's allowed us to do many things, to understand lots about these neutron star mergers, and we hope to be able to do more than that, uh, more, more of that in the future. It's also allowed us, in principle, to measure the expansion of the universe in a, in a new way, uh, because the, the, gravitational, uh, the gravitational waves give us the distance to this object, and the, the spectrum of light gives us the, the speed it's moving away, which tells us how fast the universe itself is expanding, which is a... Uh, an interesting side effect of all these things. Yeah, and and that type of thing is really really useful to have an independent measurement of that, uh, because normally we do that sort of thing uh, with galaxies and traditional light, and you have to have very detailed um, uh, spectra of them to be able to do that, and to have an independent way of measuring that, uh, so that we know what this this value of this thing called h naught is, um, that would be phenomenal, um, and. Uh, and a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to work out a very, very accurate value for this. If we can get a way of measuring it uh, that is, uh, isn't dependent on traditional methods, then we can compare that with uh, the value that we arrive at through other means. And then hopefully, when we have more of these type of events, we can have a very, very accurate measure of that. Um, and, uh, and then we'll know exactly how far away things are in the universe. It's not actually just about having more events either. It's about having more gravitational wave detectors because the 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 three detectors we've got, the two LIGO detectors in the States and the Virgo detector in Italy, allow us to measure the distance to within a certain degree of accuracy, within a, a, actually a pretty broad degree of accuracy because that all depends on whether, how tilted this thing is to us. And from gravitational wave, you don't measure that directly with these detectors. When we have the future generation of detectors, so the LIGO India in India and Kagra, which is being built uh, in Japan... Those will allow us to measure the distance much more accurately in gravitational waves, and that will give us a much more accurate measurement of this this H naught, this Hubble constant, the expansion uh, of the universe. So, in in future observing runs from gravitational wave events, then maybe we'll be able to do this uh, much more accurately. So, uh, which is which is quite an exciting prospect. Yeah. Now, Sarah, this this has been a a fairly um, a lot of concepts as you mentioned, a lot of different concepts as you mentioned earlier uh, in this story. Um, do you have a feel for what you think was the sort of the particularly the most exciting thing about this event? There's the, the, the take home for people to take away from this one event if they don't know anything about gravitational waves or gamma ray bursts in the past? Um, I'd go back to the title, uh, Gravity and Light. Mm. I think the idea that we have a new way um, of detecting events in the universe is the most exciting part. Uh, although the cool fact on my space scoop, which has already been covered, um, is that scientists think that most of the gold on Earth, as you said, may have been created in these kilonova explosions, and that's also pretty cool. Excellent. And if people want to find the space scoop, uh, where do they go? They go to www.spacescoop.org. And that's scoop, as in ice cream scoop. Well, uh, Someone some... thought it was space goop. Yeah. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so if you want to find out more, go and look at that space scoop. 
Uh, you can also go and look, of course, at the LIGO website, the Virgo website, and lots of other... Uh, the LCO website will have... Yeah, lco.global. I'm sure we won't have uh, any anything like this for a little while, but there'll be much more to talk about uh, around the west of the universe, no doubt, uh, next month. So until then, goodbye. 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 <laughs> You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm.